Welcome to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. I'm Cheryl, your host, and today we're moving into part three of my rebuttal to the Think Twice podcast. Voice actor Derek Black is helping me with the quoted material. And for all sources we use in this episode, you can visit our website, michaeljacksoncasefornescence.com. When I first set out to write a rebuttal to Think Twice, I wrote up counter-arguments for just about every point they make in the podcast. But it was too much to address all the misinformation, because the problems run through the entire ten episodes. Last time, I focused on their coverage of the first two sex abuse cases against Michael Jackson, which I thought was the most important subject to redress. But I'd like to review a few more issues— singling out prominent themes about Jackson's character and motivations. I'll show how Think Twice interprets Jackson's behavior through a narrow lens that depends on him being a child predator. And they fail to consider alternative innocent interpretations that are better supported by a broader and stronger bed of evidence. We'll start out by looking at how Think Twice presents Michael Jackson's childhood and relationship with his father. One of the implied theories in Think Twice is that the pressure to achieve success from his father and the lack of affection by both parents led Jackson to heal his childhood wounds by molesting kids. Here's Nafok setting up a childhood environment that was cold and deprived of love. For now, the Jacksons were stuck at 2300 Jackson Street, where Catherine and Joseph ran a highly regimented household. Catherine was addressed as mother by the nine siblings. Joseph didn't want to be called Dad or Daddy, so instead, the kids referred to their father by his first name. As Joseph worked multiple jobs to keep the family afloat, Catherine enforced all of his rules for the kids and tried to keep them inside that small house where they couldn't get into trouble. And in this next clip, Smooth suggests that pressure and missing love drove Jackson to abuse children. And it's hard to escape the irony that all this pressure to become a big boy started Michael down a path that would end with him as an adult, desperately trying to surround himself with those childhood dreams and fairy tales again, and allegedly destroying other childhoods in the process. A compelling narrative for sure, but just like many other themes and Think Twice, they start with this little bit of information. They build a whole narrative around this fragment and conveniently leave out critical evidence that would challenge their carefully woven story. Jackson's childhood and relationship with his father is a topic I'll be covering in detail in Season 2. So for now, I'll just touch on a few points of what Think Twice left out. First of all, their portrayal of a strict, tough-love mother, Catherine Jackson, just doesn't match the descriptions by those who knew her, including her children and family friends. From many accounts, Catherine was well known for her warmth and generosity. Here's some excerpts from an MJ cast interview with longtime Jackson drummer Jonathan Moffat, who got close to the entire family over the years. I love, love, love mother. She's like my second mother. And uh, I mean, really been wonderful to me. I never forget her. I always appreciate and love her. Um, and to watch her smile, I remember looking at her and watching her smile. I go, oh, periodically look over and, try and see her smiling. And uh, I feel her pride, and, you know, and I felt, I felt proud to be with her sons and, and be with her, the family and considered like family, like a brother. Moffat also confirms what many others have said, 
that Jackson's warmth, sensitivity, and focus on helping others stems from the positive influence of his mother. To remember Michael is to remember a beautiful spirit and a beautiful human being. You know, his talent is, is something altogether different. But I think the talent stemmed from his, his original spirit of being a very, very sensitive, in tune with life, in tune with, with appreciation, in tune with love. And I think that still stems from mother, uh, who, who guided him in his younger years. You know, she was Jehovah's Witness, and, and that faith, they pr- professed love and caring. They went to go door to door. Michael used to do that with his mother. And how should she lay the foundations uh, with the humanitarian um, traits that she instilled in him? Uh, through her beliefs and her the way she is, she's just like she's like Michael. She's so sensitive, so caring, so loving. Um, you couldn't find a person more so than her. And Michael gravitated toward that and became that because she she guided him in his early life, which carried over to his older life. Michael's brother Jermaine observed in his book that although she was committed in raising her kids to respect others and put the family ahead of the individual, their mother was always kind-hearted and affectionate. All the children experienced Catherine's love as unquestionably unconditional. So despite Michael Jackson missing the unconditional love from his father, he experienced unconditional love from his mother growing up. And she was his role model that he looked up to all of his life. But all of this nurturing and attention Jackson absorbed from his mother, and from many other mother and father figures in his life, are left out of Think Twice because it weakens their theme— of a love-starved Michael as a driving force behind abusing children. They also leave out how the harsh discipline of Michael's father, Joe Jackson, was targeted towards a mutual goal of success of the Jackson Five. This was a goal not forced on them by the father, but shared by all the brothers. In this next clip from his interview with Questlove, Michael's brother Tito talks about how he and his brothers were keepers of the dream, the dream of success in music. When they say uh, keepers of the dream, we really had dreams. We all wanted to uh, be like uh, Jackie Wilson and James Brown and the Temps. We wanted to be entertainers. It was fun, too. That's the main thing. We had a lot of fun along the journey. So it wasn't just fear driving them to practice, but a real appetite to get out of Gary, Indiana themselves and succeed in music. The Jackson brothers have explained this in many interviews. They wanted to succeed as much as their father. And although his physical discipline and tough personality was difficult for them, they do look back on his efforts with great appreciation and understanding for the harshness of his own background. But this understanding and appreciation by the Jackson boys, including Michael, of how their father sacrificed to help them achieve their own goals is not made clear and think twice, as it dilutes their theme of a father completely imposing his own ambitions on his kids. Think Twice pushes the narrative of a childhood basically devoid of any fun to help make their case that Jackson was driven to fill this void as an adult through an obsession with childhood and inappropriate kid relationships. But this theme of a childhood without playfulness and joy is just not accurate. I don't say this to minimize the extremely hard work of the Jackson brothers, nor to brush off the negative effects of their father's physical discipline. But because of how Nafok and Smooth suggest that a joyless childhood fueled abusing children, I do think it's important to correct this narrative. 
Most of the public got their impressions about his childhood from the two most famous interviews of Michael Jackson, with Oprah and Martin Bashir. These are the interviews featured in Think Twice. But even though these are in-depth, long interviews, Jackson was never asked to talk about any good times with family and friends growing up. Oprah and Bashir took advantage of his openness about his father and pressed the bad times, because the emotional impact was more powerful on their audiences. To get a better balance of Jackson's day-to-day life, you have to research the many accounts you can find in books and interviews, by family, friends, and collaborators, and even in his own book. And then you'll hear from people like his manager, Suzanne DePass, or their security chief, Bill Bray, about how Michael was a genuinely grateful, joyful kid, always at the ready to tease and have fun, to get a sense of his personality offstage as a kid. Here's a clip of the Jackson brothers just hanging out, talking about girls. Michael is the youngest voice you'll hear, and the one laughing. Tito, <laughs> <laughs> you know about them cars uh, you put together. Uh, how long did it take you to put that GT uh, Mustang yet? <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> to me, what about me? I like the Temps too, and I like the Supremes, and I like the Four Tops, I like Miss Ross, Diana Ross. You got a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, Martha and the Vandellas. Yeah, That's about he's all. strong. I like that. Yeah. Well, I like their legs big. <laughs> and I like them with pretty big eyes. <laughs> And, uh, well, let me see what else I like about girls. <laughs> <laughs> I like girls mostly on the slim side, you know. No, don't say what girl. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right, right, all right. Yes. May wanted to cry, but he be telling Mike, Mike, Mike. You know you wanted to cry. <laughs> nah. Oh, what about the time with when Jermaine was sitting on the... On the uh... oh! <laughs> no, we won't. Was... We won't. Was... <laughs> 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 My first show at the Apollo Theater. Right. Doing the church. Oh, you don't want to tell your secrets. <laughs> what about you, Jermaine? <laughs> Taking care of What about you? What about you, Jermaine? Songs and things. Tito, the other day, you know, I went back, I looked at Mike Draw, you know. This is the kind of joking around they all say happened every day, and that Michael later said he looked back on with great affection. Magic Johnson toured with the Jacksons on their victory tour, and in this interview, he joyously recollects all the fun times they had on the road, with Michael leading the pack and his ideas for their good times. Then I went out on tour with him twice. What did yes. you do on tour with Michael? So No, with all of them. Uh-huh. They, it was the Jackson the 5. The victory I, tour? Yes, I went on the victory tour. Wow. And what was so u- unique was they would send all the limos out, and the girls would scream and run down the street, right? And so about an hour later, we would come up in some white vans. Nobody even knew <laughs> we were in the vans. And we would pull right up to the uh, uh, stage. The guys would get out, run onto the, the, the uh, stage and perform, get back in the white vans, and we would be cruising like wow. nobody even knew we were in the white van. Wow, you guys have <laughs> some cool. memories from oh, that time. What was the craziest thing that ever happened? Everything. Oh, pillow fights. <laughs> what? Yeah, we would have the, the last two floors of the hotel, we would have the whole floors. And Michael loved pillow fights. So we would be out there pillow fighting in the middle of the <laughs> that hallway. That like a bunch of girls at a slumber party. Oh, right? man. <laughs> yeah, we followed whatever Michael wanted to do. That's what we did, and we had a great time. Wow. So that's fun. You hear about- this is just one interview. 
But when you hear interview after interview, including with the Jacksons themselves, with consistent stories about how Michael was always playful and having fun, even through all the adult demands of their profession, it challenges the idea of a childhood without laughter and play. So while I have no problem with Think Twice presenting Jackson's loneliness and hurt at his father, which he says he felt deeply, and I don't know the actual ratio of good times to bad, there is a broader picture of Jackson's childhood that's missed. We'll cover more about Jackson's childhood in Season 2, including directly addressing his father's harsh discipline. But this gives you an idea of what was left out of the conversation in Think Twice. Nafok and Smooth offer their analysis of two of Jackson's short films, Ghosts and the History Teaser, and they suggest Jackson's art offers confirmation of his guilt. In the music video for Ghosts, which was originally titled Is This Scary?, Michael Jackson plays the role of Maestro, the town magician. The story begins with the mayor of the town leading a mob to the Maestro's mansion in an effort to run him out. There's a confrontation with Jackson and the parents, the kids on Jackson's side and the parents apprehensive at first and believing he's scary and a bad influence. Think Twice wants you to find it creepy foreshadowing directed by Jackson that we see the parents worried, yet the children in the story aren't scared. As the scene plays out, it becomes clear these people think that Michael Jackson, or Michael Jackson's character, is some kind of freak who's been spending time with their children and scaring them. You're not like anybody. These kids think you're scary. But the kids don't look scared. In fact, they're beaming up at Michael like he's their friend. A little red-haired boy standing at the front of the mob shrugs his shoulders as if to say, I tried to tell them. Michael bends down towards him and addresses him directly. Son, do you think I'm scary? The little boy shakes his head no, but his father puts his hand on his head and forces him to nod yes. You bet you're scary. You're a weirdo and we want you out of town. Nafox suggests that Jackson is intentionally revealing his secret dark side on the screen. Watching it reminds me of Kurt Cobain singing No, I Don't Have a Gun, or Tupac making a music video in which he gets shot and goes to heaven, or maybe more like Bill Cosby making jokes about drugging women with Spanish fly. By comparing Jackson's words in the video to Bill Cosby making jokes about drugging women, Nafok implies that Jackson is deviously joking about his own nefarious behavior. Nafok continues to suggest that Jackson's narrative in this video is suspicious. I just can't get over the fact that in the middle of a career-defining victory lap, the piece of art that Michael wanted to make was about being accused of doing something dark and frightening involving children. But the sinister interpretation Think Twice suggests only works if Jackson is guilty. His role in the music video is not evidence of guilt. Remember, you haven't proven he's guilty. There's a completely innocent theme in this video that being different isn't necessarily scary or bad. A pretty positive and important message, especially considering that the video was released in the mid-90s, when there was less awareness and less public discussion about the celebration of being different. There's a good lesson here about not judging people until you get to know them. An innocent Jackson could certainly relate to this theme because of the negative public reaction to his skin condition and unorthodox lifestyle. 
but think twice is only looking at this video from a guilty perspective, and only sees Jackson as ominously flaunting his criminal behavior. Think Twice plays a clip from unfinished footage of ghosts, where the mob is calling out to Michael, asking him to reveal himself. Come out where we can see you! Come out where we can see you! Come out where we can see you! The clip is highlighted as if to say we all should have been looking out for the real predatory Michael. Nafok finds it just amazing that this video was made before anyone accused Jackson of anything, again suggesting that he was artfully giving clues of his hidden predatory self. Watching the footage from the unfinished short film is this scary, almost exactly 30 years after it was shot. What's most amazing about it to me is that Michael was moved to make this film before anyone had accused him of sexually abusing children. Very ominous sound effects here. But it's not amazing that Jackson would create a video about the dangers of othering someone for being different. He was persistently targeted by the media as being strange and different for years before this video. Photographer Harrison Funk worked with Jackson for many years. In this interview on the MJ cast, he talks about the tabloid assault on Jackson during the bad tour in Europe. This was in the later 80s, well before making this video with the mob and maestro. You'll hear how Jackson hated that he was portrayed as a freak. You mentioned um, Leave Me Alone, which is, it kind of fits into another topic that we wanted to raise because the the other kind of um, defining feature of the bad era, you've got the tour and the videos and it was really like worldwide Michael mania. But what that did also was it ushered in the era of so-called like wacko jacko press coverage, which was just bananas at the time which is the which is the theme of the leave me alone video you obviously were in michael's inner circle whilst all this media madness was going on around the outside so what was your experience from within the camp looking out at at all of this crazy press coverage and what was michael's response to that at first i i think he was taken he was really taken aback by the wacko jacko crap and I think there's an interview, I don't remember wh- whose interview it was, where, was it Barbara Walters or was it? Where he said, don't call me Jacko. Yeah, mm-hmm. he says, I'm Is not it? Jacko, I'm Jackson, Michael Jackson, or something like that. Yeah, he was. I mean, that, the, look, Wacko Jacko was, was the son, purely. I think Murdoch and his cronies would have done anything to figure a way to capitalize on Michael's fame and, and, and media attention. I think that, that they, they would have done anything at all to, to um, make sensational reports out of, out of Michael. It is, you know, it, it's pathetic. He hated that. I mean, I really, you know, I hate to say it that quite so adamantly and blatantly, but he could not stand the wacko Jacko stuff. It was just, it was very upsetting to him. And I mean, at the same time, I think, you know, there were moments when he laughed at it, but he, he was doing that for self-preservation. I don't think there was a moment when Michael really thought that it was funny. If you were in London during the bad tour, 
look at you can and you can go back to the archives of the sun and and I encourage that where every single day wacko jacko this wacko jacko that Jackson was also familiar with this pain of otherness from friends who struggled with societal acceptance such as Ryan White who acquired AIDS or severe burn victim David Rothenberg Jackson supported and empathized with these friends before making this film so it's not suspicious or revealing that before he was accused of sex abuse, Jackson would make a video about the harm of judging people from a distance. In addition to ignoring the innocent theme of not ostracizing someone who's different, Think Twice also misses deeper themes that reflect Jackson's respect for the lessons of history. For example, you can see a clear resemblance between the zealous mayor and ghosts in Sheriff Clarence Strider who's a symbol of Southern intransigence in the 1955 Emmett Till case. Emmett Till was brutally beaten and killed because of the emotions of the mob. Mob mentality can be dangerous, Jackson is saying in Ghosts. This caution about mob mentality applies to how this video featured townspeople with fears that Jackson, as the town magician, was scaring their children. This was the narrative that Think Twice found so unsettling. But it's worth considering that the ghost video first began its filming in 1993, in the middle of the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, when hundreds of daycare workers were wrongly convicted of sex crimes against children. The hysteria was largely powered by parental fears, and the resulting damage was so widespread that it's been compared to the Salem witch trials. The hysteria surrounding imagined dangers of children has long been part of the history of othering. And this theme perfectly fits into the ghost video when you look at its message through a neutral lens and see the societal environment of the time period. Think Twice then zeroes in on a scene where Michael Jackson, playing the role of maestro, explodes in anger after being harassed by the shouting mob. Here's Nafok. The scene everyone we talked to about Is This Scary remembered was the confrontation between Michael Jackson's character and the angry parents. According to the script, the parents were supposed to shout insults at Michael, and he was supposed to lash out at them. The point of the exercise was that Michael wanted something visceral enough that he would react to it, and the camera would catch him being almost physically injured by what I was saying, a, a deep a psychological wound. Freaky boy, you freak, you know, things like that, and pointing, like pointing in his face. I wish I could tell you what it was that finally made Michael snap. But based on footage from the set, which eventually made its way online, all we can say for certain is that on at least one take, something got Michael to explode. Know what you can do for me? Kiss right here. Kiss right here. You respond, you're a goddamn pig. Go to hell. Every last one of you kids. Is this scary? Ah! It's an amazing thing to listen to. Michael Jackson, as we've never really heard him before, lashing out viscerally at all the people he imagined were rejecting him and ridiculing him as a weirdo or a creep. It scared me because I had never heard him 
be so loud before. I didn't even know he had that in him. But when he said, is this scary? I like cowered. I was like, oh, I'm afraid of Michael now. You know, he has another side to him that I didn't know about. So Nafok is framing this scene as if this lashing out in the video represents the real Michael Jackson, who normally hides this darker side of himself. But Michael Jackson was acting in a film. He can't use Jackson acting angry as evidence of his real menacing self before you actually prove he's guilty. It's like questioning what Anthony Hopkins or Adam Driver is really like based on their portrayals of Hannibal Lecter or Kylo Ren. From the innocent angle, there's plenty of evidence to take this scene on face value. Jackson tapping into real frustrations about being misunderstood, with his skin condition, his relationships, or his vision for the mission of Neverland. If they're not going to walk their audience through all the evidence, I find it completely unfair for Think Twice to only present a guilty analysis of this video, when there's a perfectly logical innocent meaning. To me, it's a blatant example of confirmation bias that shows the creators of Think Twice not being able to resist the compelling idea that Jackson was taunting his viewers with his ill deeds. Think Twice uses another of Jackson's short films, the 1995 history teaser, created as a promotion for his history album. They use this film to support their theme that Jackson was a narcissist, that he saw himself as godlike in the eyes of the world, and a historical figure of monumental importance. I think there was something sincere about Michael's desire to be seen, if not as a dictator, then at least as a capital H historical figure. It would be as if Michael and Western pop music itself had come to conquer the Eastern Bloc. In the video, you can see thousands of soldiers moving in formation and huge crowds awaiting the unveiling of a statue that's later revealed to be of Michael Jackson. Think Twice uses a quote from a 90s music critic, who basically said that the teaser was outrageously arrogant and self-glorifying. The critics have said that it's the most boldly vainglorious self-deification a pop singer ever undertook with a straight face. Good! That's what I wanted. For the controversy? Yeah! And they the, fell into my trap. The I, wanted, who say that, I wanted everybody's attention. Nafok and Smooth lean into this theme of Jackson's hubris and disturbed mental state when making this video. The history teaser feels like a combination of bombastic music video and Soviet art film. It's extravagant, intense, and I have to say, a little bit unsettling. Looking back, I remember the history video being a turning point for me and how I thought about Michael where I started feeling like he had really just fully crossed over into this weird, unhealthy place. But even though they use multiple sources to support this idea of a deluded Jackson inflating his historical importance, I found the analysis of the film and Think Twice to be superficial and short-sighted. When I came across the history teaser during my research, I had no idea what to make of it. What was he trying to say? When you have a video showing fans screaming over a huge statue of Michael Jackson, it makes sense that people were interpreting it as a vainglorious effort. But from start to finish, my whole approach in seeking out the truth of the sex abuse claims was not to allow first impressions to be my final assessment. Not being a fan myself, I learned a lot about Jackson's artistry in my research, and I was surprised at how much historical appreciation was in his work. 
His Shimon's or a Mavis Staples tribute in the song Bad. There's the West Side Story theme in the Beat It video, the Emmett Till references in Ghosts, and the Black Panther imagery in Black or White. I learned that there was always more to Jackson's music and videos than first meets the ear and eye. And this was part of Jackson's genius that I discovered from those who write about music history, such as Joe Vogel and his work, Man in the Music. It was revelatory to read and listen to dozens and dozens of accounts from Jackson's friends, employees, and collaborators. There was consistent themes that emerged about Jackson's depth of knowledge of history in all areas, but particularly in the world of music, film, fashion, and photography. Here's a clip from actor Wesley Snipes, who worked with Jackson in the Bad Music video. And he talks about Jackson's depth of knowledge and care about current and historical issues. Uh, man, I met him one time in South Africa, and we were sitting in this, this palatial space. And he happened to be there. I happened to be there. We sat up, and we started talking and chopping it up. We chopped it up for like three hours. Uh-huh. And he had a, uh, a list of books lined up all along the floor. And I looked over and I said, yo, Mike, you know, people just sending you stuff like that. He says, no, that's what I read. I mean, he had everything from the autobiography of Malcolm X, Eat to Live. He had Sri Aurobindo, Krishnamurti. Uh-huh. I mean, like these exotic books, you know, <laughs> that you would never imagine Michael was down with. Right. And we sat there three hours, man, chopping it up about all of this, from metaphysics to psychology to how the black man is treated. And I was like looking at him like, Mike, Mike, people don't know about Mike on the real. Mike, Mike had a consciousness that could blow your mind, and he could recite things that would blow your mind as well. According to his brother Jermaine, Michael was that kid with the persistent why questions. And his friend Liza Minnelli, among many others, have commented about Michael's impressive curiosity. When I first met Michael, he was a kid, you know? And as he grew up, he was so funny. He was really funny. I heard that he was very and he funny. Was, and he was interested in everything. Mm-hmm. He loved my dad. You know, so I used to take him over to visit my dad. And he'd have dinner you know, with Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and the Gregory Pecks and the, all these people. And he, he was like a sponge for information. Friends and colleagues from throughout his lifespan have also unfailingly commented about Jackson's lack of ego both in his creative efforts and in his relationships. They say this closely mirrored his mother's lack of ego and always putting others first. Renowned photographer Dick Zimmerman worked with Michael Jackson on the Thriller cover photos. Zimmerman says the reason they connected so easily was because of the lack of pretension between them. Neither was trying to impress. What he saw was a curious and respectful person, eager to engage deeply and learn from another artist. Here's Zimmerman in an MJ cast interview. So we went upstairs to my loft and I took out my portfolio and then we kind of branched off and started to just talk, talk about life, talk about the future generation, talk about uh, problems on planet earth. I guess we spent about three hours at that point, just getting in communication, you know, learning about each other and, And I think he stayed a lot longer than he had planned on because we got on really well. He was able to see right right at the beginning that I was real. You know, I was not L.A. There's a way that 
LA people are. And, uh, and they're not real. And I'm always been real. I just say what I feel and, uh, and don't try to be interesting or be anything more than I, than I am. What I liked about him immediately was that he had no ego. He was just himself, just like I was. So we got on really great from the very beginning. The very beginning, I saw him actually at the studio. I knew that there was something that I liked very much, you know, the, the way he introduced me to, to uh, Quincy Jones and whoever else was there, you know. Sound engineer Brad Sundberg worked closely with Michael Jackson for over 20 years. He spent a lot of one-on-one time with him. And he emphasizes Jackson's down-to-earth nature and how important it was for Jackson to work with people who did not put him on a pedestal. Just a bunch of guys hanging out in the, in the kitchen making chicken wings and, you know, with Michael Jackson right in the middle of them, you know, eating them and laughing with us. And, and that's who he was. And, and that's the stuff that I remember. He didn't just, you know, walk among the gods and, uh, uh, you know, decree great songs. No, he was a dude that liked chicken wings. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an American guy. It's not common that I go to work, for example, and I hug my coworkers. I mean, that's just not what dudes do. Um, with Michael, every time I saw him, I got a hug. I got a hug hello, and I got a hug goodbye. And that softens you a little bit. And if you were going to work with Michael, you had to just let go of some of that nonsense of you know pride and ego and all that. And you just... You loved the guy. I mean, I genuinely loved him. And uh, it, it was a friendship that you, you rarely get. So, you know, as far as, you know, how he affected me, it, it was it was just, you know, it was a once-in-a-lifetime ride. So it was, it was an honor and a pleasure. And uh, he taught me patience, gratitude for, for all of his worth and his uh, importance. He was one of the most grateful, thankful guys I've ever met. And, and I mean that right down to if somebody would, you know, loan him a pen. You know, he borrowed a pen from one of the runners at, at the studios and he wrote the runner a little thank you note. It's cra- I mean, that's crazy. I don't mean that to be insulting, but that's how he was. You just don't meet people like that ever. And he was, he was one of a kind. These accounts by Zimmerman and Sundberg, which align with those of his other friends, not only support the characterization of Jackson as humble, but they illustrate the thoughtful long conversations and deep connections he had with his adult friends. It's a notable clash with the portrayal by Think Twice that Jackson was awkward and unable to relate to grown-ups. In another account by longtime Jackson friend and painter David Nordahl, we can hear how Jackson wanted to use his fame to help kids, but had no interest in promoting himself personally. You know, how can you spend the time with these children that are dying mm-hmm. and then go from there on stage and give that kind of performance? Yeah. And he said, how, how could I not? <laughs> he said, if these children want to see me, he said, I know I'm not important, but he said, Michael Jackson, the superstar is. Yeah. And he said, if I can make a child live an extra minute or an extra hour or a day or a month, he said, wouldn't that be worth it? 
I never ever heard Michael complain about himself, about his health or anything else. Yeah. Any concerns he ever had were always about his kids. Wow. Even when he was facing prison, you know, at yeah. the last trial. Uh, anytime we talked about that, he, he was he was so concerned, you know, what's going to happen to my kids, you know. But never, ever once did he say, you know, what's going to happen to me? How, you know, how about me? And, you know, yeah. he wasn't a me kind of person. Yeah. He was always thinking about other people. Through my research, I came to see that while Jackson did want to use his superstar image to inspire his fans and promote social unity, it seems everyone who knew him agrees that the public persona of Michael Jackson was nothing like the real person. Jackson wanted his friends and fans that he met personally to see that he was not the superstar but just a regular guy who wanted to make his life's work meaningful to people. Because these descriptions were so consistent from a wide range of sources, the picture of Jackson that emerges comes through as a genuine humbleness, grounded in his deep religious beliefs. I make this case in Season 2 by sharing many of these accounts. So to say that Jackson is trying to deify himself in the history teaser for his own ego goes against the overwhelming characterization of Jackson as deeply self-effacing and unpretentious. Another important factor to consider when trying to understand Jackson's art like the history teaser is that he didn't prioritize explaining himself to the media. His mind was always in the art, which was designed for his fans, not the critics. But even to his fans, it seems he didn't want to diminish the impact of his work with public statements about it. Here's longtime friend Macaulay Culkin speaking on Larry King how Jackson is just not good at explaining himself to the public. The thing is with Michael is that he's not very good at explaining himself, and he never really has been, because he's not a very social person. I mean, he's, you're talking about someone who's been sheltered and sheltering himself also for the last, like, 30 years, or you know, and so... He's not very good at communicating to people and not very good at conveying what he's actually trying to say to you. And so when he says something like that, you know, people, you know, he doesn't quite understand why people react the way that they do. So if you put it all together, Jackson's appreciation for history and making art that has deeper meaning, the fact that he didn't well explain his art to the public, plus the consistent accounts that the real Michael Jackson had no ego and he didn't want to be put on a pedestal points to a deeper message Jackson envisioned for the history teaser. So what was Jackson trying to say in this video if he wasn't trying to glorify himself personally? I'm going to share an analysis of the history teaser from Willis Stillwater and Eleanor Bowman, who are both from the world of academia and have studied Michael Jackson's work. Voice actor Derek Black will read from their discussion posted on the website Dancing with the Elephant. Michael Jackson wanted to use his fame to inspire and promote connection among people all over the world. Because his fans see him as a symbol of acceptance and unity, when Jackson juxtaposes images of himself with images of empires, that of oppressed society, fans can imagine how the desire for kinship and connection replaces the drive to separate and achieve authority. Jackson uses imagery of Hitler's triumph of the will to make this point in the teaser about compassion overcoming control and oppression. In Hitler's propaganda film, he builds anticipation for a better tomorrow by promoting a system of prejudice and hatred. But in the history teaser, anticipation builds towards the celebration of compassion. Charlie Chaplin was a well-known influence on Michael Jackson, and in the history teaser, 
Jackson drew from Chaplin's film The Great Dictator. The teaser's opening words are spoken in Esperanto, in deference to Chaplin's use of the language on some of the shop signs in the Jewish ghetto. Esperanto is a language that Hitler condemned as an anti-nationalist Jewish plot to destroy German culture because it was an international language created by a Polish Jew. The teaser's opening words in Esperanto echo Chaplin's final speech in The Great Dictator, with its focus on global communication and harmony. Like his hero Charlie Chaplin before him, Jackson referenced the visuals of triumph of the will in an effort to completely corrupt the sentiment. Placing Michael Jackson in the midst of Reifenstahl-like pomp and circumstance, where we would expect to find a dictatorial military leader like Adolf Hitler, not a peace-loving pop star, the history teaser evokes the scene in The Great Dictator, where the gentle Jewish barber becomes a stand-in for the thinly disguised Hitler character. Associating Jackson with the Jewish barber while alluding to Nazi Germany, history parallels the black experience with the Jewish experience, the black ghetto with the Jewish ghetto and the treatment of Jews with the treatment of blacks in America. My point in sharing this analysis is not to say that it's the definitive meaning behind the history teaser, but it is to offer an alternative, an alternative that's based on solid evidence about Jackson's appreciation for history and his work, his aversion to explaining himself in the media, his modest nature, and his mission of bringing awe and inspiration to his fans. Another point to keep in mind regarding the history teaser is that it was created as a promotion for Michael Jackson's upcoming album and tour. He, of course, wants to stir excitement in his fans for its release. Ask anyone who knew Jackson closely and they'll tell you that he felt an obligation to his fans to give them something new and exciting every time he had a new album come out. So it makes sense that he might include images of screaming fans in his video to build anticipation. I'm going to play clips from two of Jackson's collaborators. The first you'll hear is from filmmaker and editor Bob Jankus, who worked on the history teaser, talking about how important it was to Jackson to bring a high level of energy to his fans. My point with Michael, and you know, I I have to tell you honestly, before I met him and worked with him, I thought that way myself. I thought, you know, this is, you know, really pushing it and is kind of over the top. But after working with him and knowing him over the, this period of time, I really think that to me, his focus was on energy. He knew that his performance, and, and I mean energy in a, um, uh, in a spiritual sense. What I realized was it's a spiritual experience for him as well as it is for the audience. The, the point of, um, uh, you know, with at least my experience with Michael was that those moments are genuine. Mm. You know, they were not staged. The second clip is from an MJ cast interview with choreographer Vince Patterson on the sense of obligation Jackson felt to his fans. Truly, he was animated by his love for the fans. Every time we did something, he would always preface it with, I want you to create something. We, I want us to create something that the world has never seen before. And I want us to know that we're doing it for the fans. These are all alternative perspectives on the history teaser that the creators of Think Twice might have considered before judging it on face value. In 2001, Michael Jackson gave a speech at Oxford University to promote his new foundation at the time, Heal the Kids. 
In their episode three, titled "Big Boy," Think Twice placed their audience excerpts from the speech. They used the speech to support their implicit theme that the lack of affection by his father later led Jackson to seek that affection in kids by predatory means. To bolster their case, Think Twice carves out the parts of the speech that emphasize Jackson's pain and what was missing in his father's parenting. All of us are products of our childhood, but I am the product of a lack of a childhood. He trained me as a showman, and under his guidance, I couldn't miss a step. But what I really wanted was a dad. I wanted a father who showed me love, and my father never did that. They make sure to highlight when Jackson gets emotional about his father. You can hear in the recording that there was a long period of silence here, as Michael paused to collect himself, apparently overcome with emotion. My father is a tough man, and he pushed my brothers and me hard, really hard. If I did a great show. He would tell me it was a good show. If I did an okay show, he would say nothing. So Think Twice chose to magnify a few moments in Jackson's 35-minute speech, where he expresses pain from his father's lack of affection, and they suggest Jackson is using this speech to gain sympathy from the public. It was by this point a familiar narrative. That Michael had been robbed of the opportunity to experience a normal childhood because he had been performing on stage since he was five years old, and that he had suffered under the heavy hand of his father, Joseph. To some, it looks like an excuse. You know, it's the same old song from Michael Jackson, and I am kind of tired of feeling sorry for Michael Jackson and his bad childhood. Think Twice also continues their broader podcast theme that Jackson used his lack of a childhood to shield himself from suspicion. For others, it functions almost like an alibi. He's Peter Pan. You know, he didn't have this childhood, and like this is what he connects to, and he lives in this fantasy world, and it made sense until it didn't. With everything we know about how Michael was forced to grow up so fast. It's easy to see how he might have yearned to recreate a childhood that he missed out on, but in his adult years, Michael was never purely childlike. He was also, by all accounts, a deliberate and meticulous artist, a shrewd and ambitious businessman, and a master publicist for himself—someone who could make calculated choices about how to craft his career and his image. So perhaps his Peter Pan persona is best understood as a mix of something he was holding onto compulsively for himself, while also cultivating it strategically for the public. If you only heard the thing twice excerpts and commentary about this speech, you'd think it was self-indulgently centered around this pain of Jackson's lost childhood. But they deny their audience the full arc of this speech, neglecting Jackson's own emphasis on forgiveness and moving past the pain. After he takes a few minutes to share his own hurt about his father, Jackson then uses that background to connect his audience to the hidden struggles of children all over. Through the work of his foundation, Jackson says he wants to draw attention to kids who have been the victim of neglect, and he shares some of the data underlying his concerns. Here is a typical day in America: six youth under the age of twenty will commit suicide. Twelve children under the age of twenty will die from firearms. Remember, this is a day, not a year. 
399 kids will be arrested for drug abuse. 1,352 babies will be born to teen mothers. This is happening in one of the richest, most developed countries in the history of the world. Yes, in my country, there's an epidemic of violence that parallels no other industrialized nation. These are the ways young people in America express their hurt and their anger. But don't think that there is not the same pain and anguish among their counterparts in the United Kingdom. Studies in this country show that every single hour, three teenagers in the UK inflict harm upon themselves, often by cutting or burning themselves, burning their bodies, or taking an overdose. This is how they have chosen to cope with the pain of neglect and emotional agony. After laying out the challenges that kids are facing today, Jackson then turns this pain into something productive to help solve these problems. He says it all starts with forgiveness, and he talks about how he forgives his own father and empathizes with his father's difficult childhood. So tonight, rather than focusing on what my father did not do, I want to focus on all the things he did do, on his own personal challenges. I want to stop judging him. I have, I have started reflecting on the fact that my father grew up in the South, in the South, in a very poor family. He came of age during the Depression, and his own father, who struggled to feed his children, showed little affection toward his family and raised him. He raised my father and his siblings with an iron fist. Who could have imagined what it was like to grow up a poor black man in the South? robbed of dignity, bereft of hope, struggling to become a man in a world that saw my father as subordinate. My father moved to Indiana and had a large family of his own, working long hours in the steel mills, work that kills the lungs and humbles the spirit, all to support his family. Is it any wonder that he found it difficult to expose his feelings? Is it any mystery that he hardened his heart, that he raised the emotional ramparts and most of all, is it any wonder why he pushed his sons so hard to succeed as performers so that they could be saved from what he knew to be a life of indignity and poverty? I have begun to see that even my father's harshness was a kind of love, an imperfect love, to be sure, but love nonetheless. He pushed me because he loved me because he wanted no man to ever look down at his offspring. And now, with time rather than bitterness, I feel blessing. In the place of anger, I have found absolution. And in the place of revenge, I have found reconciliation. And my initial fury has slowly given way to forgiveness. So Jackson says he now looks not at what was missing, but what his father did give and he shares some positive stories about his dad. He did love me, and I know that. There were little things that showed it. When I was a kid, I had a real sweet tooth. We all did. My father, he did try. But my favorite food to satisfy my sweet tooth was glazed donuts. <laughs> and my father knew that. So every few weeks, I would come downstairs in the morning 
And there on the kitchen counter was a bag of glazed donuts. No note, no explanation, just the donuts. It was like Santa Claus. Sometimes I would think about staying up late at night so I could see him leave them there. But just like with Santa Claus, I didn't want to ruin the magic for fear that he would never do it again. My father had to leave them secretly at night so as no one might catch him with his guard down. He was scared of human emotion. He didn't understand it or know how to deal with it, but he did know donuts. <laughs> when I allow the floodgates to open up, there are other memories that come rushing back. Memories of other tiny gestures, however imperfect, that show that he did what he could. He then invites his audience members to forgive their own parents and to try not to focus on what was missing. Tonight, I don't want any of us to make this mistake. That's why I'm calling upon all the world's children, beginning with all of us here tonight, to forgive our parents. If we felt neglected, forgive. Forgive them and teach them how to love again. I was struck by how Think Twice edited out Jackson's words mid-sentence. Words that show Jackson was not wallowing in his own story, but urging his audience to forgive and move forward. When listening to the speech in its entirety, which we have links to on our website, I saw a message that was focused on extending empathy and using the past to inspire positive change in the world. Jackson uses his own story and fame to bring a larger issue of neglected children into the open. He moves the spotlight off of himself when he points out how child stars are not the only ones out there without the freedom to enjoy their childhoods. I used to think that I was unique in feeling that I was without a childhood. I believe that indeed there were only a handful of people with whom I could share these feelings. When I recently met with Shirley Temple Black, the great child star of the 1930s and 40s, we said nothing to each other at first. We simply cried together. For she could share a pain with me that only others like my close friends Elizabeth Taylor and Macaulay Culkin could. I do not tell you this to gain your sympathy, but to impress upon you in my important point it is not just Hollywood child stars that have suffered from a non-existent childhood. Today is a universal calamity, a global catastrophe. Jackson's not asking you to feel sorry for him in this speech, as suggested by Think Twice. He's trying to use his pain to raise awareness and help others avoid a similar pain. Jackson displays empathy here, not bitterness. I'll close on the subject of the Oxford speech with a quote from Rolling Stone magazine about how the purpose of Heal the Kids is to encourage parents to become more involved in their kids' lives. Heal the Kids promotes nurturing relationships between parents and children. The organization is trying to help adults and parents realize it's in our power to change the world our children live in. The organization plans to launch television advertisements with celebrities discussing the importance of family dinners. Heal the Kids will also start a book club to encourage parents to read to their children at night. The parental bonding promoted by Jackson in this speech was not just pandering to the public, but it was consistent with how he interacted with the families and kids he developed friendships with over many years. According to these families, including the Cassios, the Barnes, and the Schleiders, Jackson encouraged family unity. 
family dinners, having fun all together, and encouraging parental respect and grace. This is not the division and isolation that you see with child predators. But think twice only magnifies the parts of this speech that fit into their guilty narrative. The last issue I want to address is how Think Twice handles Jackson's other friendships. These are the friends who were close to him as kids and still as adults say he was completely innocent. To provide cover for these kid friendships, Think Twice argues in episode two that Jackson cleverly promoted the narrative that he was like Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up. They suggest this calculated branding later played a role in the public's resistance to believing that Jackson could harm children. We all seem to buy into this idea of Michael being a boy who never grew up. It was certainly an artful way to explain one of Michael's more eccentric behaviors, befriending children and toting them along wherever he went. Throughout the 80s, there was a parade of different boys, and sometimes also their families. The ones who weren't famous mostly went unnamed and unnoticed. By saying the public was buying into the Peter Pan narrative, and that it's an artful way to dismiss eccentric behaviors, you can hear them framing Jackson's Peter Pan identity as a ploy to groom the public, and to give the audience examples of what they call Jackson's eccentric behavior. Nafok describes a parade of different boys who were toted along. The word choice and tone here clearly invites the audience to find this behavior disturbing. But according to Think Twice, the public overlooked Jackson's suspicious behavior with kids. All of these friendships were out in the open and in the public eye. And perhaps because of the overall eccentric character that was being mythologized, as a culture, we seem to have merely written it off as one more of Michael's quirks. After all, he was a child himself. He was the Peter Pan of pop. Later in Episode 7, Think Twice leans into this narrative that there was something wrong with these friendships. They focus on a photo of Michael Jackson, Emmanuel Lewis, and Brooke Shields, who attended the 1984 Grammys together. You can check our source page for a link to this photo. We hear Nafok say in a disparaging tone how Jackson carried Lewis around all night like he was a toddler, and that he was carrying Lewis like an accessory. They refer to this behavior as icky and creepy. When Michael was seen out and about, he was usually doing these sort of eccentric things. For example, the date on this issue is June 19, 1984. The headline says, Michael Jackson's Wacky Friendship with Young Webster Star. Now, Webster was a hit family sitcom, and its young star was Emmanuel Lewis, a 13-year-old boy who looked even younger. And the picture on the cover of this issue is a tight shot of Michael wearing a sequined blue jacket and a gold sash. He looks like a cross between a military commander and a circus ringleader. Yeah, that pic is actually from the 1984 Grammys a few months earlier, where Michael took Brooke Shields as his date. But he also brought Emmanuel Lewis and carried him around all night like he was a toddler. So this is one of those things that, in hindsight, makes you cringe a little, or at least feel like surely people must have thought something strange was going on with this friendship. But honestly, it's pretty hard to tell what people were thinking at the time. Like, there certainly wasn't any public speculation about anything inappropriate taking place. And it's worth saying that Emmanuel Lewis himself has repeatedly said in interviews as an adult that nothing sexual ever happened between him and Michael. 
But that doesn't mean that it wasn't a bizarre spectacle in the moment, you know, especially for people who had watched Michael grow up in front of their eyes. I can just imagine that processing this evolution from little kid Michael to grown up in a tuxedo thriller Michael to now where you had this adult who was wearing a military uniform and carrying a child around like an accessory just had to be a lot to take in. There's a lot to say about what's left out of the discussion in Think Twice regarding Jackson's other kid friendships. But I want to start with this scene at the Grammys with Emmanuel Lewis. They say that it's creepy for Jackson to be carrying Lewis around like a toddler and implies something's wrong with inviting Lewis when he had Brooke Shields as a date. But remember, they aren't taking the time to prove innocence or guilt. So it's unfair to look back at this event solely with a guilty lens because there's a perfectly innocent explanation for this scene. And they just might be misreading an act as creepy and inappropriate that was actually quite kind and thoughtful. Think Twice makes a very judgmental statement without asking or honestly trying to assess the perspectives of any of the people involved. After my own study of the evidence in the sex abuse cases, I can reflect on a lot of my research when I look at this picture from the Grammys and make an alternative but educated guess on the perspectives of all three parties in the photo. Emmanuel Lewis has talked about his friendship with Michael Jackson in many interviews, and he calls Michael his big brother. He says their entire families loved each other and hung out together. So we're talking about a family-level bond here. Michael Jackson was, you were his friend, you were with him a lot, and you, you know all the controversy that followed him. What was it like watching your friend go through that? You know, it, it was, um, you know, it's, it was horrible, you know what I mean? Because, you know, you know this guy is great. You know he's got a heart of gold. And, um, you know, you know that he wouldn't do any of those things that people were talking about. Uh, in the, in that Martin Bashir documentary, he was pressuring you to try to, to, to divulge of anything that happened to you. Yeah, they they were they they're always trying to you know you know put words in my mouth for trying you know make crazy stuff happen. You know we just had the the best times. You know he's always been nothing but a great friend, not just to me, to my own my own family. And with regards to what Brooke Shields might have thought of their Grammy trio, Think Twice chooses to share an unsourced rumor from the National Enquirer. And in the National Enquirer. The stunt was played as a sort of third-wheel situation where an unnamed source had Brooke Shields telling Michael, I guess I have to get used to this if I want to go out with you, but it sure is hard to explain why there's always the three of us. According to the media bias chart by Ad Fontes, the National Enquirer ranks as the least reliable news source, with a rating of 10 out of 65. For context, the Associated Press, which is ranked at the top of the chart, has a rating of 52. I find it journalistically unsound to use an unsourced rumor from the National Enquirer to try and make the case that Jackson was creepy and inappropriate, especially when you can hear stories from Brooke Shields directly from her many interviews. Here's her interview with Oprah in 1993. I think we love each other more now than we even knew we did when we were younger. Really? We, we used to, well, because we had fun when we were younger. I mean, it was Okay. And we were sort of a source of relief. I mean, it's almost unfortunate because we know each other so well. I mean, I feel more relaxed around him mm-hmm. or more comfortable with him than I do. So it's sort of, and I mean, I've never really had a brother. There is part of that. It's like a love on a, on a very different level, and it's hard to really explain. And whenever I've tried to explain it to people, it's been misinterpreted. 
Shields has consistently described a deep brotherly love towards Jackson, and she's never expressed disappointment that he pushed her to the side to make room for his other friends. She talks about the many fun times they had together, just the two of them. All three in the photo, Lewis, Shields, and Jackson, had a special kinship because they were all in entertainment as kids. And Jackson was known for reaching out to child stars and offering support and fun opportunities, like going to the set of one of his music videos or getting to go to the Grammys. Actors like Lewis, Macaulay Culkin, and Corey Feldman all describe his gestures as kind and thoughtful, and believe Jackson had genuine good intentions. But what's not as well known is that Jackson nurtured relationships with child stars from all generations, including Liz Taylor, Mark Lester, Liza Minnelli, and Shirley Temple. This wasn't just a special club for kids. So when you hear from both Lewis and Shields that they love Jackson like a brother, and that Jackson connected with both of these friends because of their shared showbiz childhoods, it makes sense that they would both be invited. As I explained in season one, and you'll hear more about in season two, Jackson's default behavior was always to invite more friends, whatever the occasion. His friends say Jackson just wanted everyone to feel included and get to share in special experiences. And as to Jackson carrying Lewis through the crowd at the Grammys, I really don't understand what's creepy about this. Lewis was twelve at the time, but he was only three feet tall, which is the height of your average three-year-old. If you're going to bring your three-foot guest through a mass of people, I think it would be pretty thoughtless not to offer a view and protection as you made your way through this crowd. Think Twice doesn't mention there are other pictures of Lewis being carried in a big crowd by Jackson's security chief Bill Bray. I ask the hosts of Think Twice if Lewis himself had no problem with it. Why should you? Can you not see this might just be a thoughtful act? It seems the most journalistically honest thing to do before judging this scene is to reach out and ask Lewis himself if he thought this was strange or creepy, or Brooke Shields, because if you listen to the overwhelmingly warm and positive recollections of Jackson in their interviews, there's nothing to suggest they would see his inviting Lewis to the Grammys and giving him a protective perch as anything but a brotherly act of kindness. Out of my own curiosity. I took an unscientific poll of fifteen people who were not Michael Jackson fans, and none of them thought this scene was strange or creepy. They all didn't have an opinion on guilt or innocence, but this scene at the Grammys holding Lewis offered them no evidence one way or the other, because there's perfectly innocent ways to look at it. To look back on this and declare it so strange and inappropriate is another clear example of confirmation bias. As a gesture of fairness, Think Twice could have taken a poll of the public to see if their impressions of impropriety were shared among people who haven't decided Jackson's guilt or innocence. Moving on to the broader issue of friends who hung out with Jackson when they were kids and have resolutely maintained his innocence, Think Twice seems eager to make short work of this topic. Out of ten full episodes. Nafok and Smooth dedicate only a few dismissive lines about these friendships, encouraging their audience to think about them as odd and improper, and that Jackson's intentions should be questioned, even if there was no molestation. And then they seem to dust off their hands and move along, glad to have that pesky issue handled. But these friendships with kids who say nothing happened 
provides some of the most powerful and persuasive evidence for Jackson's innocence. And while they have to acknowledge that these friends have all denied anything inappropriate, Think Twice steers their audience around what's so convincing about these denials. It's the details in their stories. When given the time to explain the nature of their friendships, these accounts become quite relevant to the issue of guilt or innocence. Their stories allow us to see how Michael Jackson's behavior over many occasions in many years clearly doesn't match those of child predators. If there were only a handful of these stories, they wouldn't be so persuasive. But we're talking about dozens and dozens of accounts. They make up almost our entire season two because they're so relevant and impactful. To emphasize this point, I'm going to quickly list off some of the men who've shared stories of their innocent friendships with Jackson as kids. Brighton James, Alfonso Ribeiro, Billy Ramirez, Ryan White, Frank Cassio, Eddie Cassio, Jonathan Spence, Brett Barnes, Sean Lennon, Yoshi Whaley, Dave Rothenberg, Omar Bhatti, Talun Zaitan, Macaulay Culkin, Bella Farkas, Gotham Chopra, Brandon Adams, Corey Feldman, Anton Schleider, Aaron Carter, Corey Haim, Emmanuel Lewis. Almost all of the guys on this list spent more time with Jackson than any of his four accusers and their stories consistently depict a very free-spirited, open, and inclusive Michael Jackson, who just wanted to find meaning in his success and wealth by connecting with real people and trying to make a positive impact on their lives. It's also worth considering that Jackson nurtured just as many adult friendships and female kid friendships, completely ignored by most in the media, and which we'll highlight in Season 2. I'll share with you some clips from three of the men on this list, actors who were kids when they became friends with Michael Jackson. The first is Brighton James, who met Jackson after writing him a letter. I wrote a letter to him and she was able to get it to him. He wrote a letter back. And then a year later, I was asked, along with Raven Simone, to present him with an NAACP award. And then we got to go backstage. My father and I got to go backstage afterwards. I met a couple of his cousins who are my age, still friends to this day. They're like my brothers. He invited me and my whole family to come to the ranch. And uh, we did. And um, from, that, from that time on, he would just stay in contact with me. And his, I know his goal was to make sure that I was having a good time and having fun being a child in the entertainment industry. And next is Corey Feldman, who says Jackson was like a big brother to him, who took the time to offer Feldman support and encourage a playful and grateful mindset, despite the adult demands of his work in entertainment. What is your overview of that relationship? Well, he was the big brother I never had, quite honestly. Um, He was everything to me as a kid. He taught me so many things. He's taught me about loving animals, vegetarianism, uh, animal rights, environmental issues, caring about your fans, how to treat your fans, the fact that the moment that you meet your fans may just be a fleeting moment to you and something that you're in the middle of things and you got to take time for, but to them, they're going to remember this moment for the rest of their life. So how important it is with that exchange and, and how you treat them. We discussed everything, you know what I mean? It was literally like a big brother, little brother relationship. The last clip is of Corey Haim, who was a friend of Corey Feldman, and who also spent lots of time with Jackson and experienced the same genuine care about his well-being and show business. Everyone's always supported him, but I just wish it would have been like this the whole time. 
I grew up with them, and I, when I met him, you know, first thing I remember Feldman says, don't call him Mike, don't call him Mike, and okay, I won't. I said, what's up, Mike? Yeah, he gave me a big hug, and you know, he just treated me like gold, treated everybody I saw around, the, the three T's, Tito kids were there, and you know, just treated everybody with such dignity and respect, and just loved everything and everybody. Now, these were a few of his celebrity friends, but Jackson also maintained friendships with kids who weren't famous especially fans he met from around the globe. I'll share the example of Brett Barnes. Barnes had an almost identical story to one of Jackson's accusers, Wade Robson. Nafok and Smoot changed their opinions to believing Jackson was guilty based heavily on Wade Robson's stories in Leaving Neverland. Both Wade and Brett as kids met Jackson while he was on the Bad Tour in Australia. In both cases, Jackson responded to letters the families had written to him developed a friendship with the boys and their families, and they were all invited to Neverland. But this is where the stories diverge. Whereas Wade Robson and his family, by their own testimony, rarely saw Jackson, Barnes and his family maintained a steady and long friendship until Jackson's death. The Barnes family went on tour with Jackson for months at a time, just like many other friends and family of all ages. However, Wade Robson, who wanted to tour with Jackson, didn't get invited, and he and his mom were upset with him at the time and expressed resentment about this lack of attention. I'll play for you some of Barnes' 2022 interview on the MJ cast. He's around 40 at the time of the interview, and he's been consistent since he was a kid that Jackson never did anything inappropriate. No touching, no secretiveness, no isolation. In this first clip, Barnes expresses frustration at how the media cast harsh judgment on his parents when they allowed Brett to spend alone time with Jackson, whether on tour or at Neverland. And to, on that front, did they ever ask you any questions about it? I mean, particularly after the Chandler allegations of were made public, did they ever sit you down and ask of you course. questions about it? Of course they did. Because they're parents. They're not going to let anything happen to me. It's hurtful for people to think that my parents wouldn't have seen something if something was off, even the slightest thing, if something was off, that they would let it happen for anybody, regardless of who it is, that they would stand aside and let something happen to their child. That, to me, is very hurtful to think that they would do that. So me being a parent, being in a situation where something happens, you had better believe that I'm going to to be a hundred percent on point having a look at the situation and making decisions off that. There's no way that I would put my child in harm's way or let anything happen to them. So for me, if I was in their situation and the exact same thing would have played out, I would have done exactly the same thing. In this next clip, Barnes comments on why he doesn't believe Jackson's accusers. I guess that is a brush statement for me to make, but my viewpoint on the matter is that I spent a great deal of time with him up until his passing. For most of my life, he was he was um, a part of my life, and my experiences within um, with him for that great amount of time for nothing to not only nothing to ever happen to have me, but for me to have not seen anything um, that would cause me concern. So for me to have been spending all this time, and I guess it is only the time that I was spending around, so I can only comment on that, 
and then projecting it onto the onto the rest of his life, there's no way that I could see it happening. That him doing anything um, bad to anyone happening. Yes. So, you, and your opinion, I take it, is that you don't believe that Michael ever did abuse any children. I couldn't. I can never. I could never see him doing anything bad to another human being, let alone a child. And here Barnes talks about the social media harassment he's received for defending Jackson. The allegation which is leveled at you publicly on social media Mm. every day, Mm. pretty much, or certainly every week and nearly every day, Mm. is that you must have been abused and you are lying about that. And that's deplorable because you are undermining people like Wade and James. So I just want to, I mean, would you agree that if you had been- Let me just say, if that if that is the absolute if that is the case if I if something had happened to me but I'm keeping quiet about it in order to protect some dead person and uh, excuse me for being so blunt but to, in order to protect some dead person that had hurt me but also at the detriment of other people's of other people's health and well being so for it to have happened to me to be keep quiet and to let it go on and happen to someone else as well, what type of monster would I be? What type of monster would I be? That was my next question. So you would agree that if something had happened to you and you were lying about it and thus undermining genuine victims, that would that would be deplorable behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. And is that what you're doing? Of course not. And finally, here's part of his response when asked how Jackson should be remembered. So he was a, a, a great humanitarian. He was a, a funny, funny, funny person. He was hilarious. It was so good to hear him laugh. We would make him laugh real hard. He, was, he really was my brother. And I, um, yeah, I have nothing but praises for the man. As we outlined in our final episode from Season 1, the child that's most prized by the child predator is the child that's most accessible. This trumps any other potential selection preference like appearance. Well, Barnes was very accessible, and he says nothing happened. But the media, and certainly Think Twice, aren't interested in the telling details in these denials. And so naturally, these accounts haven't been amplified by the media and therefore haven't moved the needle of public opinion. When you look at sex offenders like Larry Nassar, Jeffrey Epstein, and Harvey Weinstein, their patterns match typical predator behavior, in that they attempted to abuse anyone they could isolate and have access to. And their victims reportedly numbered from 80, up to 500 in the case of Nassar. Michael Jackson, in contrast, had four accusers, out of dozens of kids with the same kind of access and opportunity. I'd like to know how NAFOC and Smooth reconcile this glaring discrepancy. Do they think Brett Barnes, Yoshi Whaley, Macaulay Culkin, and the rest are lying, or not understanding what really happened, and that Jackson actually molested them? Do they think that all these guys couldn't recognize grooming behavior, even later upon reflection? That would be pretty presumptuous, especially considering they haven't talked to these guys directly. 
and especially considering that we're talking about dozens of men who've been consistent over the years that Jackson was innocent. Or do these podcast hosts think things could have happened just like Barnes and the other friends said? That Michael Jackson not only never touched these guys, but never engaged in any grooming behaviors. That, of course, would not match typical predator behavior and makes no sense. That Jackson would groom and abuse just these four accusers, but not any of these other kids, repeatedly in the very same vulnerable positions as these accusers. Child molestation is described by experts as a compulsion. They can't help themselves once the child is isolated. But it all does make sense when you see what's different between Jackson's four accusers and all these kids who said nothing happened. What distinguishes Jackson's four accusers is that they or their parents were all seeking fame in the entertainment industry. They were all resentful at Jackson for not doing more for them and they all exhibited traits of entitlement. The many innocent friendships of Jackson also make sense once you examine the four accusers' accounts, in their testimony and lawsuits, and find out about the rampant false, illogical, and contradictory statements they've made, many under oath. Credibility should matter when you're assessing accusations of this magnitude. And when this kind of repeated deceit is present, you can't trust the words of these accusers. We never hear the serious credibility issues brought up in Think Twice. And while both the Leaving Neverland and Think Twice teams reached out to Jackson accuser Gavin Arvizo to ask for his input in their projects, neither reached out to Brett Barnes, even though they include Barnes in their discussions and clearly imply he had an inappropriate relationship with Jackson. Any project like Think Twice or Leaving Neverland that starts with a guilty narrative runs into these troublesome issues of other kid friendships and the accuser's lack of credibility. They have to check the box and admit all these other kids deny anything inappropriate. But they avoid fully explaining how they can brush off these denials so carelessly. They don't confront the credibility problems, and they don't take their audiences step-by-step through the sworn testimony of these accusers. It's unfair to suggest there was something creepy or unsavory about Jackson's relationships with guys like Emmanuel Lewis, Macaulay Culkin, or Brett Barnes, without fully representing their stories or asking them for their opinions directly. Think Twice takes expedient shortcuts around these issues of denials and credibility, that if addressed head-on, would decidedly damage their tight and tidy theme of a guilty, conniving Jackson. We have one more episode to go in this four-part rebuttal. Next time, I'll wrap up my thoughts on Think Twice and offer an alternative narrative to the main question of their podcast, Why Haven't People Cancelled Michael Jackson? I'd like to recommend the MJJ repository threads for more well-sourced rebuttal material on Think Twice, especially their thorough analysis of how Think Twice misrepresented Jackson's PR tactics. You can find links to this thread and all of our sources on our website, michaeljacksoncaseforinnocence.com. And you can reach out to us with any questions or comments through our website or on Twitter at Case the Number 4 Innocence. Thank you for listening to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. Mm-hmm.